Um, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 for our scripture reading this morning. Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 20. Matthew 20, 20. Got to have that 2020 vision, right? <laughs> All right, so we're going to read verses uh, 20 through 28. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her, with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. Then he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not <clears throat> this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did, uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for today, Lord. We thank you that we're here together, Lord, getting ready to uh, worship you, Lord. I pray that our hearts are prepared today as we um, get ready, Lord, to do the Lord's Supper. And I uh, pray that you be with Owen this morning as he uh, teaches with Barry as well. And God, I just ask that uh, uh, when there are no distractions in our hearts, our minds, our ears, Lord, and that we're able to focus on you today. And I just pray, Lord, that um, you guide us uh, with the Holy Spirit and teach us, Lord, your truth as we proclaim today. We pray in your name, Lord. Amen. Word that it would land upon hearts that are ready and open to receive everything that you have for us, God. That we align our, our lives with it, that we live in a manner that is worthy of the calling which we have called into salvation. And we always consider what it costs our Lord and Savior on the cross of Calvary to pay the debt that we owe, the sin debt that we just sang about. God, it is truly amazing. It is a miracle of yours that you have saved us. And we just thank you for the gift of salvation. We pray that uh, we continue to consider that today as we enter into a time of study and then taking of the Lord's Supper together, that you prepare our hearts, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may be seated and turn with me to the book of Philippians. And we should be closing out chapter 1 this morning. We've been in the book of Philippians, I think, for probably six, maybe seven Sundays right now from when we started the book. And we have a ways to go. If you are new to our church, um, just to prepare you ahead of time, we do teach expository here, meaning that we begin in one book of the Bible, and we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse until we are finished with our reading of that particular book. And we find there's a richness in that, that we're not skipping over the difficult stuff. Um, we expect God's Word, because it is true, to challenge us. Is it not on? Is it on now? Okay. I thought it was on earlier. Could y'all hear me singing? Yeah? Okay. 
<laughs> All right, sorry about that. Oh, I'm kind of a loud mouth anyway, so sometimes I, I don't need a microphone to project my voice. But uh, just coming back to our method of teaching here, we teach expository chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we do that because we know and we stand upon the authority of Scripture that it is God's truth to us. And we want to know all of him that we can. We want to know his nature. We want to know his desire for us. And we need to be confronted, confronted with our nature, which is our sin nature. And we need to come into agreement with God about that sin. And before we take of the Lord's Supper today, I want that to be in the forefront of our minds because we must judge ourselves in order to take of the bread and of the cup in a rightful manner. So um, we're going to be coming back to the study in Philippians, but I think it still all centers around Christ and the gospel and what he has done for us. So we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 27 through 30. Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. Now that you can hear me, I'm going to give you some time to turn there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I think we're confronted with a question here. What is it to live a life in a manner that is worthy for the gospel, or worthy of the gospel of Christ? I want to point you to a similar parallel verse that is found in the book of Ephesians. Paul charges the church in Ephesus here in much the same way. If you go to the book of Ephesians, beginning chapter 4 with verse 1, we see a very similar exhortation from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And because we see so many parallels from Philippians to Ephesus, uh, we know that both of these books were written from the same situation during Paul's imprisonment under the, the Praetorium Guard. So in Ephesians 4.1, Paul there says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he's referring here that calling to which we have been called, this is the call of salvation. This is for those that have been saved by God's grace. Paul is speaking of their salvation, urging them to walk in a manner that is worthy of the salvation unto which they have been called. And here in Philippians 1, 27, the same thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, the gospel, the good news that has saved us. And the Greek word that translates the phrase in a manner that is worthy, a manner worthy of the calling, is one Greek word, axios. And it means the weighing of something on scales. And I'm not talking about the bathroom scales that you have that you, you probably don't want to step on, you know, at the end of the day after you've had a heavy meal. I'm talking about the scales that we see, like the balance of justice scales. Like you have on one side a weight 
that is applied, and then you have the other side where you apply another way, and you're seeking to balance those out. So that is the phrase, manner in a, in a manner worthy. That's oxios. And the idea is that our manner of life should weigh as much of, as the gospel that we claim to be committed to. How we dress, maybe that's how we speak, that's how we conduct our lives, that's the company that we keep, that's the music that we listen to, that's the conversation that we engage in when we are at work. Are we letting the manner of our life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Gospel of Christ here, the manner of our life here. How does that weigh out? In other words, the value we place on our salvation to consider the cost to our Savior on the cross, of, of our Savior taking our sins to the cross, will determine the manner in which we walk, in which we live out this Christian life. And if we pay little attention to our salvation, maybe we just get an, a, give an assent to it, and maybe we just consider it something that we did at church one day where we walked forward down the aisle and we said this prayer with a pastor and maybe we signed our name to a card and we reflect back as that being that moment of salvation for us. But then we go out and we live our life and continue just in the manner in which we, once, we always lived in, in a lifestyle that is patterned after sin. And we're still in that old life. And that would call into question whether that salvation was real. Because when we look at this verse, we have to ask ourselves, what is our salvation to us? What is your salvation to you? And it really should be everything. If you value it as everything, like Paul did, like we see the example that he sets for us, if we value that salvation, we should be willing to live our life in a manner that is worthy of that. Always striving the way in which we live out our life, corresponding to the gospel that we are preaching? Now, that's a challenging question to us. So something for us to consider as we weigh these verses that uh, we're reading today. As we continue on, Paul says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So remember that Paul is speaking from the heart of a pastor. He had spent a lot of time in, in Philippi. He had taught the word there. He had endured much serving, much suffering for the sake of sharing the gospel with those that were in Philippi. He had been taken into custody. He was put in jail along with Silas. Uh, they were tortured. They were beaten. And Paul, was his desire of sharing the gospel with them, of teaching them, having the heart of a pastor, it far outweighed anything that he would endure on behalf of them. And of course, his desire was to be there with him. He expresses that. So whether I come and see you, or if he is absent, if he's not able to come and be there with them, and a pastor should have the desire, always, I think, tantamount to anything else, is to teach the Word of God, is to teach it and to be faithful to it, and that is one of the most caring things, I believe, that we can do for God's people, for the people of the church, is to teach the Word, to divide it rightly. And I believe it should be in such a way that their desire for God should stand out and far surpass their desire or their um, attachment to a person, attachment to a pastor 
or an attachment to some leader in the church. And granted, we all start out in infancy in our faith when we come to Christ, when we come to Him in salvation upon our conversion, but there should be a continued growth that is seen that should be bringing us nearer and nearer to God and not to man. And that is the way that we desire to teach the Word of God here so that you are not going after a man, you are not clinging to a a man, but you are looking to our Savior. Leaving the church because the pastor moved on, you hear that happening a lot. And that, to me, indicates the attitude that they just can't get along without the pastor, and so it begs the question, then who are you really worshiping? What are you really attaching yourselves to? What is your focus when you are at church? And I'm not gearing up to leave, I don't want you to think that, but... I would hope that if I did, the attachment to me as a person would never outweigh the desire for God and His Word. And that goes the same for any person that is teaching here, anyone who is leading out in some kind of mission field, that God, that Jesus Christ would be the focus and that would be your main intent, not man. No one is out in front of the other in terms of priority, but all should be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So in a sense, the church in Philippi may, may have felt that it owed its existence to Paul, right? Because he had been there preaching. He had introduced the gospel to them. And so many had come as a result of Paul's message. But whether Paul was absent from them or whether he was with them, he wants them to hear, hear of their standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is essentially telling them here, you don't need me in order to move forward in the mission. Whether or not I'm there, you keep pressing on. That is his charge to them. And that should be for every church. Whether the the leader of the church has been there for 20 years, preaching the message faithfully, eventually, you know, they may go on somewhere else, you don't just move on because that pastor moved on. If you really are considering the Word of God and God Himself as being your priority, then you will remain there. You know, I like to think um, this, this church is so well grounded in their faith and in the Word of God that if for some reason, you know, all of us that are in teaching positions here, if we got salmonella or something like that, Oh boy, we're about to have a potluck. That shouldn't be uh, something that I should bring up right now. If, if we all got some kind of illness and we weren't able to be here and just a few people showed up, that eventually they say, okay, well, we're at church. Let's open up the Bible. Let's read the Word of God. Let's study it. We don't need someone here to, to necessarily lead us along if they're not able to be here, but that is the church that I hope that you would be, that I hope that we would be. And an exhortation from Paul here to the church is that we are to view ourselves as constantly on mission together. That we're not just serving as individuals, moving in our own directions, but Paul is talking about us being side by side, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, That we aren't marching towards nothing, but as we advance the gospel together, recognize that that is going to come with various forms of adversity. That if we are teaching and preaching the truth of God, 
in this sin-stained world, in this fallen world, then it is going to meet with some form of opposition. And so Paul continues, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And one of Paul's favorite phrases is standing firm. He says, standing firm in one spirit. And the Greek word for that phrase, standing firm, is steko, S-T-E-K-O. And that almost translates well to English, to be stuck in something, almost to stick your feet in and not be moved. You can kind of get the sense of that word here. I don't know if that's where our English word, like, to stick something or stuck, comes from. But it means to literally stand and it is often used in a figurative sense in the New Testament. That's when Paul says standing firm, he's normally speaking in a figurative sense. And steko was used in the context of a military battle referring to soldiers who determinedly refused to leave their post, regardless of how severe the battle was being raged around them. Right before Paul describes the spiritual armor of the believer to the Ephesian church in chapter 6 of Ephesians, he exhorts them to stand firm then, stand in this armor, not just a piece of it, but in the entire armor of God, and to stand firm in it. You have everything you need in him and in his word. So the battle that is out there for every one of us as believers, the battle really is for truth. Do we really hold to the authority of Scripture being God's truth to us? Earlier in that letter to the church in Ephesians, Paul speaks of those that claim to be Christian, yet he says they are tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That there does not indicate any firmness in a person's standing, but rather they're over here, and they're over there, and they're over here, and they're over there because they are not standing firm on the Word of God. But we are to be steko, standing firm in one spirit. And the idea of that word is also to be constant in it, not just to stand there and do nothing, but to continue in it, to persevere and remain steadfast in it. That is what standing firm means here. And Paul urges them to stand firm in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit. And the question here is this one spirit, as to whether that is a reference to the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the triune Godhead. And most commentary suggests that this is not referring directly to the Holy Spirit. Now, there can be some debate about this, but I tend to see this more of the Spirit being a unity of mind and heart and attitude around the gospel when he's talking about standing firm in that one spirit. But the spirit, which is, could be this attitude or this resolve, it is only possible for Christians who are walking in the spirit, who have the indwellment of the Holy Spirit. So really, that one spirit is indeed attached to the Holy Spirit that is enabling and empower, empowering the believer, the ability, giving them the ability to stand firm. And that means in unity with Christ and with like-minded Christians walking in the same manner, walking side by side, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And when Paul talks about the faith of the gospel, it reminds me what Jude writes about this being more of an objective body of truth, that faith, 
not necessarily one that is that active faith that we put into something, that belief in something, but rather that objective kind of faith, faith that centers around something. And here, it is the faith of the gospel. Jude writes, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then another example of the faith, referring to that objective body of truth, is Paul's statement that he makes in Galatians 1.23 that says, Preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. So as Paul is writing this and saying, standing firm in the one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that objective kind of faith that is defined really by the gospel. And then in verse 28, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Sometimes we see that the strongest witness can be how we hold up under adversity and how we endure suffering. We see this throughout Scripture. In the book of Acts, we can look at Stephen, who was considered the first martyr for Christianity. And if you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 51 through 58, I'm not going to read the entire account because... He delivers an outstanding sermon pointing to Jesus Christ being the Messiah, but it is in probably the longest chapter in the book of Acts. But I want to point out, here's something specifically in verses 51 through 58. So this is after he has delivered this powerful message. Um, It has really singled them out, the Pharisees, mainly the religious Jews, how they have rejected Christ and Christ being the, the, the true God who was sent down, who was the one who was crucified for our sins, who was the sent one, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And he says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who... You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know to be Paul, which is the author of this letter here. So he was the one that Paul had witnessed getting executed. And that was Paul, who was Saul, approving of this execution And when Paul writes this in Philippians, that we are not to be frightened in anything by your opponents, and that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God, I think of of Stephen here and the powerful effect that this might have had on Paul. Now keep in mind, this is just Owen speculating. We don't find this in Scripture. 
But some think that Stephen's courage in death for the defense of the gospel is one of the things that the Lord was referring to in Paul's Damascus Road conversion. And we have that account in Acts chapter 9, but later on in Acts, Paul tells it again as he's standing before King Agrippa, and he includes something in here that's interesting. So if you want to move forward to Acts chapter 26, verses 13 through 15, as we consider maybe the powerful impact that Stephen's uh, death might have had on Paul. Acts 26, beginning in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the, high, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And some commentators believe here that this kicking against the goads that he was describing, the goad was these sharp sticks that kept the oxen in line and kept them moving forward, that there was something that was pressing against Paul that he really just couldn't shake loose. And something he saw maybe in the death of Stephen, that he witnessed Stephen standing firm, unfrightened in the face of death, that that had an impact, that that had a witness to Paul. And that's just pure speculation on my part again. That's not in Scripture. But any time we see courage rise up, when the expectation was to see fear and to see a recanting of one's faith, but rather see them hold up under this persecution and suffering, even in the face of death and even unto death, that that is a clear sign to them, is what Paul is saying, of a believer's salvation, but also of their enemy's destruction. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Because the martyr's refusal, excuse me, refusal to be intimidated by their enemies gives evidence that the salvation they had experienced was real. So a clear sign of their salvation. But the second part of this is that it is a clear sign of the persecutor's destruction, the opposer's destruction. To them, it is not salvation. The opposer, it is their destruction. Perhaps it is seeing the reality of a supernatural fearlessness empowered by the Holy Spirit within the life of one being persecuted. Perhaps it is that that they're seeing in the believer that makes them aware of the truth of their message. Like, wow, if there's something empowering them to be emboldened and encouraged, even though I'm about to kill them, or I'm, I'm bringing this persecution upon them, if they're able to hold up under this, and if that is real, what they're preaching, then that means I am under God's wrath. That destruction is coming for me. Perhaps it is seeing the reality of that. And that's an interesting word for destruction, though. I, I try to include a few Greek terms in here, and this is one of those. When Paul talks about this being a clear indication of their destruction. The Greek word is apoleia. And two words put together, as Greek words often are, the first one is apo, which means the marker of separation. Apo is a marker of separation or away from, and olethras means ruin or death. But it doesn't mean annihilation, like totally ceasing to exist even into eternity. So this is not for the annihilation, is to say, you know, there is, is no hell. That is apparent that there is, according to the Scripture, because what Apollea infers is uh, the state after death, 
where in the exclusion from salvation is a realized fact where the person that is standing in eternity apart from God is realizing they are not with God and they are bound for destruction. And that is a place that the Bible says is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we see in the life of Paul and others who were at one time the accusers and the persecutors that they are not out of the reach of God's grace. So even to those that the witness of the martyr is a clear indication of their destruction, we see in the life of Paul that he was saved, that he was one of those who persecuted, and the message, perhaps it was of Stephen, of him holding up under that persecution, being a witness of his destruction, Paul's eyes were open, and of course they were in a dramatic way on the road to Damascus, but this could have been the impetus for that is this is that goad that was pressing against Paul. There's something interesting, the fact that Paul is telling us not to be frightened about this that we could endure, that we'd have to undergo as a believer. And for him to tell us not to be frightened, and for the Word to tell us, for God to tell us not to be frightened, it indicates that God knows that we will be, that there will be the temptation to fall and cave into fear because he understands that we'll go through a struggle. He understands that we fight against this flesh sometimes. But just like we hear in other places of Scripture that we are not to be discouraged, so it is in fear when we are faced with fear. And it's all over the Christian life. We're going to find it wherever we go. If we profess Christ truly, then there will be persecution. Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So God certainly knows the fear and the discouragement that are present all around us. And so we need to be reminded not to fear. We need to be reminded not to lose heart. We need to be reminded to take courage. And this is one of those instances here. Jesus in John chapter 14, he understands the disciples' growing fear and worry over the things that he has been saying about going to his death and being a death on the cross. And so recognizing this, Jesus speaks into that fear with these words when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. Jesus recognized their fear, and he needed, they needed encouragement from him. The Lord's reassurance to his chosen people Israel, we find it throughout the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 41.10, Fear not. For I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It is the recognition that we will be faced with times of fear. We will be faced with times of discouragement. And God, in love and kindness and encouraging mercy, He wants to comfort His people and give them reasons why, despite the fact that they do have reasons that they could be discouraged, that they do have reasons that they could be fearful, why they should not. And I believe that is what the Apostle Paul is doing here. 
He's reminding us not to be fearful, but to stand firm. Because in every believer is the Holy Spirit, empowering that we can lean on to empower us and enable us to be encouraged and to be bold in our faith, even when we face fearful circumstances. Verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. There are two graces that are mentioned here. And I say grace because if you look at the Greek word for granted, when Paul says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, it is a Greek word, charizomai. And it comes out of charis, which means grace or God's unmerited favor. So in reading this, we are to understand that not only is the believer graced in salvation, right? Because he says, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe, that means put your faith and trust in Christ, believe for salvation, not only believe in Him, but another form of that grace is to suffer for His sake. That the suffering Christian should see this as a privilege, that God has graced us with His suffering. So faith or belief has been granted in salvation, and that is according to God's grace, but then also suffering. So see it with me. For it has been granted, it has been, you could translate that as graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And our view of suffering is probably very seldom viewed as a privilege. If you were to ask me if I really enjoyed that time of suffering that I endured, you know, whatever that looked like in periods of my life, Along the way, I probably wouldn't have said that it was very much a privilege to have undergone that, but as believers, we consider it a part of God's grace, an aspect of His grace towards us. In the Scriptures, we see how the early church responded to their suffering. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42. This is after they, the disciples had gone out, shared the gospel, They had been taken into custody. They had been beaten for the sake of sharing the gospel. Had appeared before the council again. The council told them, don't go out and preach this word anymore. And where it picks up in Acts 5 verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They were told not to, they, they suffered for having shared it, and yet they continued to go out and share it, even though that it probably meant more suffering for them into the future, but they rejoiced in it. They saw it as a grace of God towards them. Now, it is true that we bear consequences of our sins, and there are certain types of suffering that we will endure as part of God's uh, punishment for us, that suffering that we may have to endure because We are corrupted by sin, but part of God's plan also includes suffering for us as part of His grace. In 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We will 
be persecuted. And when you go through a tough time, it doesn't mean that God has fallen asleep at the wheel. And, oh, I just let that one get through. Sorry, you know, my bad. God does not sleep. God is entirely faithful. And so we have to filter suffering through His faithfulness, through His sovereignty. And suffering is a part of His plan for each of us. In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. A rejoicing that is found in suffering because it is God's grace to us, salvation and suffering for the sake of Christ. And that is... The key word there, for the sake of Christ. This is not a self-made suffering. If anybody has kind of followed the life of Martin Luther before the, the nailing of the 99 treatises on, on the wall at the Wittenberg Cathedral, that he um, was so caught up in that works-based salvation and suffering and taking this suffering aspect to another level, which is a self-imposed suffering, he would literally walk on his knees through the stations of the cross until his knees bled, and he would whip his back with the whip because he interpreted this to mean that that was something that led to his salvation, that he needed to force this suffering. And that's not what is being told to us here. We shouldn't uh, see it as that. It's not a self-made suffering, or and not the result of sinful behavior or actions, um, and it's not the quality of suffering Paul's referring to here. It is for the sake of Christ that we endure suffering. If you are proclaiming the gospel, if you are teaching the truth of God, if you are preaching it boldly, then others are going to persecute you and you may endure suffering, but understand it is suffering for the sake of Christ and we are to rejoice in it. As Paul will later write in chapter 3 of this letter that he has suffered the loss of all things in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ. And then he would go on to say that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death. Finally, verse 30. Paul says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So the phrase that Paul uses here when he says engaged in the same conflict, many of the believers in Philippi that he's writing to had been witness firsthand of how much Paul suffered while he was in Philippi teaching and sharing the gospel with those that were there. Acts 16 gives the account of Paul's time there. We looked at that, that passage when we did the introduction to the book of Philippians. But it's mainly there in verses 19 through 34 where you see Paul and Silas being taken in, being beaten and flogged and whipped and put into the stocks. And in the midst of all that suffering, um, out came worship. They were singing songs and then God miraculously intervened and the the jail cell doors just broke open and they were freed miraculously. These were all those things that the, the believers in Philippi had been witness to. And so when Paul says engaged in the same conflict that you saw, that's what he's referring to. This is what you saw and I and had and now hear that I still have. He reminded them earlier in this chapter 1 of Philippians in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his imprisonment is that suffering that they are now hearing about as well. And Paul is saying, we are all engaged in this together. 
I am suffering for Christ. Understand that it is for his sake. And when you endure it for, this, for sharing the gospel boldly, that is for the sake of Christ and it is to his glory. So I want to conclude here and just kind of uh, wrap some things up. And that is that the life that we live as a believer is going to be seen or should be seen as something that is counter-cultural, a counter-cultural lifestyle. And that means that the culture that you see in society today, which I say is, is full of lies, is full of deception because it is under the sway of the enemy and the culture that we live as Christians, as believers in Christ, should run up against each other. And it's just like the same poles on a magnet, how you try to force them together and they just won't stick. That should be the life of a believer in a non-Christian society and a non-Christian culture. So we are to live counter-culturally. We uh, talked about being foreigners in this land, that we are sojourners here. When we're saved, we're regenerated, we are giving that hope of heaven and that's where our life is. We are to live as citizens of heaven as though we are already there. And the people to which Paul is writing were Roman citizens. Remember that Rome had gone in and they had defeated the rebellion against them and so they had set up their colony and they were accorded certain rights as Roman citizens and they, they valued that. You know, they saw that as a privilege and so they took on certain customs that identified them as citizens of Rome. You know, they were not taxed, their, citizens, their city was under Roman culture, and so their culture reflected Rome and not the other cities around them. And you take that, you kind of liken that to us as believers, is that the culture that is around us is not the culture that we adopt. The culture that we adopt is the one that identifies us as heaven-bound, as those who long for that home, to be with God. They had adopted styles, languages. They had adopted Roman names. And so when Paul told them, and he tells us at the very beginning, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, as they were reminded of this, that their manner of conduct and how they present themselves to the outside world would reflect their loyalty to Christ. And we should be keeping this in mind as we too are more than just citizens of our country the United States, and we are accorded certain rights here. We have many liberties that, that others don't have. But beyond that, we should view ourselves as members of a community of faith and that our heritage is in heaven. And in our walking together side by side, that we hold each other accountable in that, accountable to God's word. And we walk side by side, and we help to encourage and uphold each other in the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word. I pray as these truths just begin to embed us and uh, take root within us, that is only the things that really are of you, God, that anything that I might have said that was speculation on my part or things that just were in error, that they would perish right here. And the only things that really take hold of us are the things that are found in your word. Help us, God, just to align ourselves more with your will and purpose for us to be intentional in our living out this Christian walk and recognizing that we were just foreigners here, 
that we walk in it, but we are not to be stained by it. We are to live our life as citizens of heaven, to be walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us that perfect gift of grace that we did not deserve and that we do not earn. And Jesus, that you took our sins to the cross, that you died there the death that we deserved, that you took on the Father's wrath for the sin that was ours. And you died and you shed your perfect blood for the forgiveness of that sin. And you said it is finished. No more are we bound to the works of the law to try to earn favor with God, but it is simply by his grace that we are saved and through faith in the perfect work of Christ our Lord on the cross. And that he defeated sin and death and he rose again from the grave and we have a victorious life in him. And God, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, that we are reminded of all that Christ undertook on our behalf. That leading up to the cross was the crown of thorns, the scourging, the accusations, the spitting upon his face, the carrying of the cross, all the suffering that he endured, what our sin deserved. God, I pray that these things would come to mind as we ready our hearts to take of this, that we do it in a somber way, that we do it sincerely. And if someone here does not know you, God, that maybe right now you would ready their hearts, that you would draw them to you in salvation and that their eyes would be opened as Paul's were, that they would realize that they have been not been walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And maybe it was a profession of faith that was made years ago uh, when they were young, but they haven't been living that out and they recognize it, that it wasn't real but that today it would be real in them, Lord. Please move in their hearts as only you can and that we just be faithful to preach and teach your word. We ask this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I ask that you turn with